Today's episode is supported by Vivo Barefoot, whose mission is very close to my heart. There's something incredibly powerful about feeling the ground beneath your feet. It's more than just like walking or running. It's about forming a connection with the earth, a connection that most modern footwear has unfortunately severed. Vivo Barefoot aims to mend this disconnect by making footwear that's wide, thin and flexible, enabling natural movement. Born from a long lineage of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot carries a rich heritage of craftsmanship and a deep understanding of what makes footwear truly beneficial for us. Enjoy the discount code HARVEST15. Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. I am into experiences that are sensorially immersive and that arrest the mind's attention and that in some sense exceed our maps. So we all create maps to orient ourselves in the world. That's just called growing up from a child to an adult. And then as an adult, you kind of live inside your maps, semi-autopilot, you know. Occasionally something doesn't fit in your maps and you encounter that thing and you pause for a moment and you're like, okay, I noticed that. And then you quickly incorporate it into your maps, your updated maps, and you move on. But sometimes you encounter a self-transforming machine elf in the middle of a DMT trip or an art piece at Burning Man. The point is, or the Grand Canyon, or the birth of a child, or an orgasm with a woman that takes your breath away. The point is you can encounter things that are beyond what you might have ever imagined. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is another special episode to start the seventh season of Harvest, with an interview made in Caplancaya during the Harvest event with artist and digital creator Jason Silva. Jason explores modernity and technology and hosts a YouTube channel called Shots of Our. In this episode, we'll discuss optimism, radical hope, technology, and movies. I was glad to have Greg Puy from the French podcast Vlan sitting next to me to co-interview Jason in a beautiful garden in Caplancaya. And we started to ask him why he was so optimistic about technology at a time when some technologies as AI can be so scary. Thank you for the question and thank you both uh, for having me in this hybrid <laughs> podcast conversation. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I feel a lot of resonance with uh, the words of Kevin Kelly. So Kevin Kelly is the founding, one of the co-founders of Wired magazine. He's considered a technology maverick and futurist. And he uses the, the word or the term protopian when discussing like his views of the future, his orientation. So it, it's not the same as being a utopian, you know, a utopian optimist that just assumes everything will be fine or a dystopian that has just succumbed to doom and gloom and fatalism. But a protopian believes that, hey man, we may be flawed, stumbling primates, but when we work together, we are primates that can fly. So 
no doubt we're at a inflection point, kind of intelligence explosion when it comes to things like artificial intelligence. I've been lecturing about exponential technologies for 10 years. So I, I feel like I've been talking about this for a long time. So I'm not, not really that surprised that, that the world is finally waking up to the pace of change, the pace of innovation. And there are some legitimate concerns, no doubt, when it comes to AI. Could go off the rails, you know, it could be weaponized. It could play out in ways that we can't even predict, you know, the so-called unknown unknown. But at the same time, like, I mean, look how far we've come. Look how fast we've gotten here. Like we were crawling the savannas of Africa and now we're like building space telescopes that can peer into the big bang. You know, I can call my mother with a device that Amber Case calls a techno-social wormhole <laughs> opener. You know, the smartphone like just opens up a techno-social wormhole whereby space and time and geography collapse and I can see another person and talk to another person across oceans, across continents. So I see technology all around me that, as Arthur C. Clarke said, is indistinguishable from magic. So creatures that engender things indistinguishable from magic can get their act together if they need to and if they want to. So, and the protopian view, I believe, is exactly that. It says, hey, man, if we get our act together, we have within us the capacity to, as Stuart Brand said, we are as gods and might as well get good at it. So, I, you know, it's not saying, there's no guarantee, I suppose, right? But my intuition and my feeling and I suppose my faith lies in us, in this being our finest hour, in us rising to the occasion. But at the same time, I mean, you cannot ignore that we live in a very individualistic society. And uh, this goes, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, humans are stronger because they go together and because yeah. of language and all those things. Yeah. But at the same time, since uh, the Enlightenment period, we are, we are very much into, into this individualistic When I listen to talk um, like uh, Tristan Harris on on uh, yeah. on AI, people are listening, and yet they are wondering, yes, but how can I take advantage myself of AI? So they are listening to Tristan saying, "Oh yeah, AI is super dangerous," and at the same time wondering how they can take advantage of it because they they don't want to be last. So you know the struggle, and that that's to me is the issue. Absolutely, and it's nothing new under the sun that technology is and has always been a double-edged sword. And so the alphabet, how wonderful this tool to encode human knowledge, to allow us to communicate, and you can weaponize language, writing, same thing, the printing press, how liberating, Everything. but also hate speech propaganda can really propagate itself through the printing press. Same with social media. Without social media, I know that my career wouldn't really have been possible. And the hearts and minds that I touch through my work that thank me for the ways in which my work has served their life wouldn't be possible for that. We were not for that medium, for that technology, but we've, we've seen the weaponization of social media. We've seen what it did to the United States in the elections. We we've seen how it was used. Cambridge Analytica. We've seen what happened with Brexit. I mean, incredibly problematic stuff. And I guess that's just the story of man. Unfortunately, the story of humanity is in some ways, We are Promethean beings and we steal fire from the gods, but perhaps we got ahead of ourselves. We didn't have the, the wisdom and the prudence, as Daniel Schmachtenberger said, to 
utilize to deploy these tools in the best of ways. We sort of just deploy them and the use cases happen and some are good and some are bad. And maybe we need to get ahead of that before the tools are world shaking and world destroying tools. Who should be the wise men we're trusting? Yeah, good question. In terms of like, who do we listen to is, is probably the, the toughest question of all. And I talk about this as well, that human beings are, well, we're storytelling animals and, and our compass, our, 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 the way we orient ourselves, the way we orient our behavior, the thing that tells us how to act in the world is, is, is a storytelling structure. You know, like, like this seems to be like the, the, at, at the very bottom of consciousness is story. You know, meaning is extracted from story. And so these narratives, these stories, they, they sustain us or they can destroy us. You know, there's nothing more tragic, but also fascinating about somebody who chooses to take their own life, especially in the Western world where we have secured such material prosperity, such material wealth, something that our ancestors would have like dreamed about, you know, cell phone, internet, communication, whatever, cable television. And that today more people die by suicide than die from natural disasters and armed conflict combined. Well, suicide is a crisis of storytelling, in my opinion. When the story you tell yourself about yourself is no longer convincing. When the narrative that sustains your life, when the narrative that gives your life meaning collapses or gets inverted or gets corrupted like a software file. Well, if you don't have a story, you can't live. You know, man totally. can live mm. a few you know, weeks without food, a few days without water, but not for a minute without hope, not for a minute without a sustaining narrative. And so the narrative matters. Jamie Wheel during the Harvest Conference talks about when people come together and are like jolted into aliveness by something called soul force. It's the thing that wakes us up, you know, this affirmation of life in spite of its tragedy. And he cites people like Martin Luther King, you know, potentially Nelson Mandela. And these are people who in the end were orators. I think about Barack Obama, you know, the best story wins and the best storyteller in a way casts a spell upon his or her audience. And so it's a great question. And, you know, I'm a, I, I love, <laughs> I love language. I love literature and I love poetry. And so I, I want the, the, the best storyteller or the storyteller that wins to be a very literate one. I want, I want, <laughs> I want just an inspirational voice that becomes the voice we, you know, that we all orient our lives around, but I don't want it to be an ideological voice. I don't want it to be a populist voice. I don't want it to be a voice that separates us, that casts us into a world of us versus them. I want a unifying voice that sees the other as oneself and that at the same time celebrates our differences. And so that requires a different kind of thinking. You know, somebody informed by the overview effect, somebody informed by psychedelic egoless rapture, somebody who's been moved by song, you know. I, I mean, I, it's a big thing that I'm looking for the person to, to be the storyteller of our times. The people I tend to respect the most are filmmakers because I think they tell the best stories. They tell the best stories through modern myths, which I think films are Christopher Nolan, for example, his new film that he's making about, you know, Oppenheimer, I am become death, you know, about the invention of the atomic bomb. I probably feel there's probably more, more, more relevance in this new film. I haven't seen it yet, but more relevance in this new film now, as we face all these cataclysmic potential, you know, runaway effects with our technology to watch a film about what happened, you know, when we, when we really started to play God and discover atomic power, Um, so, again, yeah, long-winded answer, but I think it's, it's storytellers, the right storytellers. Mm -hmm. 
Jason is also a storyteller, philosopher, and trying to make sense of our existence. He was the host of the National Geographic channel Brain Games and the creator of the YouTube series Shots of Owl, exploring different topics like science, technology, philosophy, or relationships. I went to film school and I double majored in philosophy and film. And the reason that I ended up falling into the short form storytelling or the short films, as I call them, that I, that I narrate is because in some ways, like uh, I realized that what was happening with online distribution of content and online video is that people were consuming uh, this media in a different way. So while a film length, a traditional film length works, you know, in a dark room when people are sitting quietly on a big screen or maybe even at home on a big screen. When people are watching content on their phones or on their computer in between multitasking, like you really only have them for a minute, for better or worse, you know? There's a lot of benefits, but also a lot of consequences to the, 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 just the amount of information, inputs that people are receiving. And so I just kind of felt, well, I have maybe a minute, two, three minutes, four minutes to, to, to see if I can get in there, to see if I can, you know, jolt a person into into paying attention, into learning something. And it just so happens also that like in conversation, sometimes the greatest downloads, you know, might be like a three minute stream of consciousness that emerges mid conversation. Boom. So that's my video. Like my video is that it's like, it's like, it's an aha moment or a, a moment of, of reconciling opposites, you know, like you have a thesis, you have antithesis, and then you have synthesis. I try to make my videos to be like that moment, the, the, the synthesis of an idea, the realization of an aha and capture that at like a little video pill. And you can teach some somebody a concept or an idea in, in three to five minutes. I really think you can in a filmic way, in an emotional way. Yeah. What is your process to, to do those videos? Do you prepare? Do you write something down that you learn by heart? How, how do no. you do it? Yeah, good question. So it's funny because creative people are always interested in like how to become more creative. And the, the, the marketplace for creativity is huge. There's a lot of consumerism around creative enterprising. How do I become more creative? What are the <laughs> steps to becoming more creative? But I, I remember reading an article once that, that really resonated with my process, which was about like the key to creativity is mood regulation, you know? So it's not like, how do I become more creative? It's how do I become more joyful? How do I become more awake? How do I become more in tune? You know, mood regulation for me at least seems to be the key to creative outbursts. And so rather than plan what I'm going to talk about in a video, I make sure that I get a really good sleep <laughs> and I plan the environment where I'm going to be. And I try to design a place that will inform a state of being that will give rise to a reflection shaped by that state of being. And so my videos in some ways are trip reports. They are like direct reflections of something that happened in the moment. That's why they're so of the moment. They're so real. They're so authentic because you can't plan something like that. It's impossible. All you can do is set the stage and take a leap of faith. What about boredom? Because boredom is, is a huge part of uh, creativity also. Yeah, funny you say that. There's a great essay written by a guy called uh, Henry Weismeyer about the age of, he says... Uh, The search for awe, or the age of awe in the age of, the search for awe in the age of awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things that he said was that experience is the new faith and we are refugees from the mundane. Mm. 
So we are running away from habituation. We are running away from boredom. You know, boredom is that feeling of low affect, mm-hmm. low engagement, low salience. And typically I only experience boredom <laughs> when I haven't slept. It's really the only time that I'm, that I'm bored, if I'm underrested. If I had a really good sleep, I can pretty much beam my attention. I have the resources to beam my attention towards anything. And anything that you bring a certain quality of attention to becomes fascinating, you know? So, but yes, I mean, you have to seek novelty for sure. And now, now granted, frustration and boredom, yes, that can lead to creative births. Usually if there is boredom or any kind of frustration for me, it just makes me double down on making sure that tonight I get a really good sleep and tomorrow I go somewhere new and beautiful with a friend and get into it, you know, and wake up from that. Mm-hmm. So, so it ends up definitely being a, it lights a fire under your ass. Like if I'm bored today, <laughs> I do not want to be bored again tomorrow. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Because you were talking about uh, creativity yeah. and we were talking before about technology. I was wondering exactly what's the part also of, um, how technology inspires your uh, creativity. Sure. You went, you did like a video that went on with AI that went yeah. viral. Yeah. Um, so what are the tools you're using? Sure. When do you notice a technology and say, oh, I'm going to use it? And, yeah. uh, well, I think the first one that really got me excited was eight millimeter camcorder back in 1994. <laughs> you know, like all of a sudden you could make movies with like the little video cassettes yeah. and it was a for consumers, not a professional film camera, but just a handheld camcorder. And my mom bought me one, it cost her a thousand dollars, like hey. 1994. Wow. And she was very generous, but she knew I loved movies. And she was like, you're going to use this for a creative. And I started making videos with my bro. I could make movies, you know, and that was like 94. I was 12, you know, and by the time I was like 14 or 16, I was making videos with my friends, interviewing each other about ideas. I was in love. And then I bought a dual deck VCR, which means I could transfer the footage from an eight millimeter tape to a VHS and I could oh, dub in yeah, music yeah, yeah. in the transfer. <laughs> so without having any digital tools, I could still add music to my videos. So that was like a creative use of technology. I can make these music videos edit them in my head, shoot them in sequence, and then just dub the music afterwards. And I was like, <laughs> I have a music video. That was very exciting. And, and, then, and then in some ways I anticipated that these video cameras would get more and more sophisticated. I never quite anticipated that they would merge with an internet enabled device, like a camera on a smartphone. Mm. But I already had a fantasy that a camera that fit in my hands, I could travel around the world, get inspired on the top of a mountain in Iceland and record a reflection about it. But then with things like the iPhone, my dream was literalized because now I could hold this device. You know, I was making selfie videos before word, the word selfie became the word <laughs> of the year. Like, I was very ahead of my time in that sense, you know? Um, but, uh, but I've always creatively used these tools to up the ante of the cinematic power of my media. Um, and then the latest iteration of this now is, is working with some of AI powered visualizations. So part of what I try to do in my videos is I want to bring people into the ineffable spaces of my inner world, the imagination, you know, which has its own dream logic. You know, it's like a dream. You can imagine the future and the past. You can imagine things that don't exist. You can hybridize things that don't exist with things that do exist, like all of that. And when you want to visualize that, There's traditional editing, you know, you source some stock footage, you cut away to imagery that's literally or metaphorically connected to what I'm talking about. And you can put people in, in a kind of trance, in a kind of dream. But now I can actually generate original 
imagery generated by AI-powered algorithms in combination with specific verbal prompts mm -hmm. and run it through a rendering engine that will then bring original, like, like liquid imagination rendering my thoughts visually around me in a way that is truly a kind of psychedelic experience. And I did a video about the power of AI art using this AI art, you know, and, it, and it's just insanely creative in my opinion. I've never <laughs> seen anything like it, even though I, I did it. And uh, yeah, it's always just seen like, what is the new thing and how can I use it to augment the storytelling? Because it's still about the story. So do you think artists should or must use AI to, to continue with the time? Like, uh, like you could tell like uh, a writer should work with a computer or... Um, a painter should work with uh, Photoshop or whatever. Uh, I think I think should or must are strong words. Uh, I think if they, I think if you you know I I think some people still love vinyl records and that's beautiful and I'm sure that there would be a premium placed on analog technologies for totally. sure. But I think I think if you're inspired to pick up a new tool like. You know, Kevin Kelly likes to say, imagine how impoverished all of us would be if the technology of oil painting didn't arrive in time for Van Gogh or the technology of the musical instrument didn't arrive in time for Beethoven. So, like, these technologies, they increase our possibility space. And I don't know who or what form of genius or unique combination of person and tool will manifest, but I know that beautiful things will be created that we can scarcely imagine and it would be a loss for that not to happen if those tools were not there. Which one would you uh, dream to happen as a filmmaker? Oh my goodness. Um, you know what would be kind of amazing would be, you know, fully immersive virtual reality. And I'm talking about something indistinguishable from like embodied experience of the world, like like Neo in the Matrix, you know. But instead of <laughs> instead of seeing that as a, as a prison, I sort of see that as a kind of psychedelic liberation, you know. I oh, just wow. imagine us like being able to like experience like flying, you know, like like combining skinny dipping and flying through the sky, you know, in this virtual reality world, you know, where we can witness like star systems and black holes and wormholes all around. I mean, it'd just be really cool to swim inside of like this kind of cinematic universe that's fully fully 3D and, and, and fully surrounding us. I've, I've always dreamed about fully immersive virtual reality. Like, I want to go into the screen. The seventh season of Harvest Theme, co-created by Jamie Will, was Badical Hope. Jason made a speech during the last day in Kaplankaya about this topic. A speech that included artificial intelligence movies and that aroused the enthusiasm of the participants of Harvest. Let's listen to them, starting with Vishen Lakiani, the CEO of Mind Valley. I told Jason it was the best talk I'd ever seen him do. He spoke about the idea from Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, do androids dream of electric sheep? And he turned such an obscure idea into something so profound and poetic with AI-generated artifacts in the background, including electric sheep. And, and that whole presentation absolutely blew my mind. 
First, I like the energy of the person and about the, the message he wants to transmit to uh, people who came to listen to him. There's a thousand of ideas uh, he's putting together, but at the same time, he's, he's insisting on some of the motto that he is uh, broadcasting when he shows his video, when he makes his talks. I love him. It's, <laughs> it's impossible not to love him. I don't know if I understand quite everything, but I feel the, en the emotion and the energy what he's talking with. And I think it's just beautiful. And the, the message at the end was like really positive and good and nice. And really, I'm, I love him. I like Jason Silva's work. I think it's, it's very insightful. I think he has a particular style, which is very amusing, very intriguing, somewhat addictive, I would say, to, to, listen, to be listening to. He has a very interesting perspective. I like it. I like the way he visualizes his, his journeys, his inner journeys. I like his energy. I think it's a good balance to some of the other things that we've been seeing. And what does it mean for you, radical hope? How do you explain it? Yeah, I love the term radical hope. And I think radical hope is what happens after radical healing and radical wonder and radical technology. That was the my thesis in my talk right. okay. that I gave today, which was, you know, how do I get there? You know, because hope is one thing, but radical hope means, man, I'm leaping into this open-eyed, I believe, I trust. It's a trust fall. But the only way that I could trust fall without shitting my pants is if I've healed my fractures, schisms, fears, and traumas, you know? And if I've returned to a kind of wholeness that then connects me to the holy, you know, that place of radical wonder to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower, infinity in the palms of your hand and eternity in an hour. Like I want to go full on William Blake, you know, <laughs> so first heal myself, then go full on William Blake, radical healing, radical wonder, then radical technology, because then I'm now imagining the impossible dream and I'm imagineering the impossible dream. So I'm putting it into action. I'm making it so. And then after, I mean, the coupling of those things, healing, wonder, technology takes me to a place of not just hope, but knowing, catalepsis, the truth from which nothing can dislodge you. That's the, the, my formula for radical hope. It takes a lot of wisdom to do that. Mm. And I, I was, it's, it's a basic question I'm going to ask, but how do you take that at scale? How do you make sure, because you were talking, uh, we, we started with the, the politicians yeah. and those guys, they're not there. At all, like no, no, <laughs> not at that's, all. They're depressing. Yeah, they're very depressing. Every oh, country, it's depressing. not yeah. American, it's not European, it's pretty much everywhere. I know. So how do you take that at scale? How do you I make know. sure people are into that uh, wisdom, yeah. especially the people litigants somehow? It's interesting you say that. You remember Vaclav Havel? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 Rose Revolution was it or something in the Czech Republic? But yeah. wasn't he a poet before he became president? That I don't know. I think he was some kind of an artist or something. But like, I think the, the romantic dream is, I guess we need our leadership to come out of the arts. And I'm not saying actors, because politicians are like actors. But I want, but more artists, more poets. All right. More of these kinds of thinkers in positions of power would be very interesting to me. Because I agree, the thing that makes me most cynical in the world are politicians ego-driven, narcissists, short-sighted, just 
not very inspiring. Obama was inspiring to me. He seemed like a really wise man, but, you know, his hands were somewhat tied. Mm-hmm. I suppose that sometimes happens in a place that has a balance of power. Not inspired by anybody I see these days very much. But I like to think that even though they're in power, there's other kinds of power that shapes the world too. I think technologists are able to shape the world more than politicians in some ways. Politicians are there hopefully to prevent us from initiating physical force against others, although they don't do a very good job of that. But again, that's the whole thing. Like they have the guns and they make sure that we don't shoot each other and they make sure that people don't shoot airplanes from the sky and do that. And then let the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the technologists, the poets and the artists through their soft power, you know, steer us forward. Is a sense of oh, do I say yes. it right? Yeah, is a. <laughs> we had the a challenge. Of- <laughs> so beautiful. Is like a um, new spirituality. For me, it is. I think that when I experience awe and wonder, it sounds a lot like a spiritual experience. I don't use the word spiritual that much because I think it's been corrupted by misuse, by ide- ideologues forcing people into certain scriptures that maybe don't speak to them and so on and so forth. And this is the spiritual path that you must follow and so on and so forth. And I'm not, I'm not into that, but, but I am into experiences that are sensorially immersive and that arrest the mind's attention and that in some sense exceed our maps. So we all create maps to orient ourselves in the world. That's just called growing up from a child to an adult. And then as an adult, you kind of live inside your maps semi-autopilot, you know, occasionally something doesn't fit in your maps and you encounter that thing and you pause for a moment and you're like, okay, I noticed that. And then you quickly incorporate it into your maps, your updated maps, and you move on. But sometimes you encounter a self-transforming machine elf in the middle of a DMT trip or an art piece at Burning Man. The point is, or the Grand Canyon or the birth of a child or an orgasm with a woman that takes your breath away. The point is you can encounter things that are beyond what you might have ever imagined. And that opens up a space of obliteration of your maps and a place of virginal noticing. And that's awe. And it turns out that awe doesn't just feel good, it leaves an afterglow. Like it's like a medicine that has an effect. And the effect is increased compassion, increased well-being, increased humility, and it has anti-inflammatory properties. Mm -hmm. So it's like good for at an organismic level, (laughs) blowing your own minds is good for you. Yeah. And how do you cultivate this sense of, oh, like when you have a, when you're in a bad mood, depressed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good sleep, nature, and cannabis. That's my formula. And I live in a place where cannabis is legal. (laughs) FYI, but, uh, but, um, you know, you know, I think, I think people can get there through a variety of ways. Novelty is a pretty great trigger. You know, again, something you haven't seen before fires up the dopamine and boosts salience. It boosts engagement. You're more present. Novelty is good. Arousal is good. Contemplation, meditation, all these things are good. Lubrication. That's what cannabis does in a way. It just, it just, for me, at least it, uh, floods my mind with heightened noticing. Yeah, I wanted to know how you look at death as a philosopher. I'm I'm not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) I think that psychological death, i.e. the death of our fears, the death of our traumas, the death of our rumination, the death of our locked-in thought patterns that no longer serve us, the death of the ego, all things are healthy psychological renewing practices. But that's very different 
than the withering away of your vitality, the rotting away of your flesh, the failure of your organs, and the loss of everyone you love. Now, if we are, in fact, eternal, if some kind of awareness persists, then hallelujah and amen and great. But if not, it's a tragedy. And yet, uh, death gives the essence of uh, the beauty of life because... Some people say that. I, I'm, I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least I feel like if you were eternal and if you've seen Islander to go back to the movie thing, it's kind of sad, especially in the, in the, in the world where everybody cannot uh, be eternal. But when you're eternal... Nothing really matters, you know, you don't have any joy because, well... you Because you need contrast? Yeah. yeah. Okay, look, I definitely, I hear what you're saying. But, you know, I used to tell my mom, I'm bored. And she's like, only boring people are boring. <laughs> And I kind of feel like if you need death for life to be exciting, something's wrong with you. <laughs> life itself is what gives meaning to life. And uh -huh. I don't need to be put to death, <laughs> to be handed a death sentence for me to come into aliveness. So I'm asking uh, one question to uh, all the guests of the podcast uh, Harvest okay. Series. Ooh. If there is one thing that gives you hope, what is it? A nice smile, unexpectedly. A beautiful song that gives me the goosebumps that's not on my playlist, that I just heard it randomly because a friend played it, and I'm like, wow, a new expression of beauty that I didn't anticipate. Stumbling upon a film trailer that I feel like is this film is going to change my life. I know it already. And yesterday I didn't know about this film, and now I do. When my dad sends me pictures of him hiking Mallorca, and I'm like, wow, my dad's 75, and he's hiking mountains and living with extreme vitality and presence. He's not going quietly into that good night. He's raging against the dying of the, of dying of the light with, with passion and, and fitness and vitality. So there are examples everywhere. You know, anytime that the good, the true, and the beautiful reveals itself, I feel hope. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Uh -huh. Oh, Greg has and, a question. And I have a, a, I have a, a oh, last question also. Um, my last question would be, the, the name of the podcast is Vlan. So it means uh, slamming the door to. And I was wondering, what would you open or slam the door to? Or slam and open, just yeah. open or just slam? Yeah. Up to you. Well, very personally, my biggest battle has been my battle against anxiety. You know, in Venezuela, you know, I was always scared of, home invasions, kidnappings. My dad was once kidnapped, you know, like break into the house, that kind of stuff. So I was always afraid of, for my own safety and, and it got in my skin, man. Like even after I left Venezuela, you know, I'll be in a movie theater in the US and I'll be like, what if somebody comes in here with a gun and shoots everyone? Like I, wor I, I, I have those thoughts. Yeah. That's going to ruin my fun. I'm watching a movie, having a religious experience and some son of a bitch is going to come here with a gun and end it all. Fuck that. So anxiety has been a problem for me. So if I could shut the door on one thing at this point in my life, at least, firstly, I live in a country with no guns, but <laughs> I would shut the door on somatic anxiety, which is like the, the tendency to the catastrophize the feeling of just unease in the body that comes in for no reason when there's turbulence on the plane. I would like to shut the door on that. Wow. And, uh, and I would like to open the door to radical bliss as like my new normal. Mm. you know as as to make that my default 
That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Jason Silva's explanation about why he's so passionate about technology, though being conscious of its risks. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. The next episode will be with mountaineer Sandy Hill. She will share for the first time in a podcast her experience on Mount Everest 27 years ago during one of the deadliest expedition ever. And even if she made it, the terrible consequences that followed for her. Don't miss the episode. Until next time.